Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Helen McKenna, I'm Senior Fellow here at the King's Fund and I'm your host for this episode. Like many people at the moment, we at the Fund are working from home, which means we're recording this episode remotely, so please excuse any background noises that you might hear. Today, I'm super pleased to be joined by Dr Nish Manik. Nish, you've had a stellar career journey so far. You're a GP trainee, a former clinical fellow at NHS England. You founded NextGen GP, um, which is a national leadership programme for trainees and new GPs. And I think you recently started hosting your own podcast. So loads to ask you about. And it's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Helen. I'm I'm utterly humbled to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast, listen to it all the time, and I can't quite believe that I'm sitting in this chair. So thank you for asking me. So we're going to be talking more about your leadership journey later in the episode, but I know you're currently working as a GP trainee, and obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic. I just wanted to ask how you are. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm okay, actually. You know, being a GP trainee gives me a sense of purpose. I'm really lucky. I get to leave the house. I get to talk to people. I get to talk to lots of people every day. I came back from maternity leave. That was last September. And uh, before I went on maternity leave, COVID wasn't a word. And of course, when I came back, it was a word that had transformed general practice into a specialty that I frankly didn't recognise. So it was very hard. It was hard coming back. And everything just felt a bit a bit unfamiliar. I was a bit disorientated. Everyone was a bit muffled and detached because they were behind PPE. So it was a very strange world to come back to, a very different style of working. It's It's been a journey. I feel like I'm starting to find my feet about six months later. As you say, I mean, we've seen some pretty significant transformation of general practice during the pandemic in order to continue to be able to deliver care to patients despite all the obstacles that the pandemic has presented. What have been the main changes that you've observed and, and do you think that we're going to see a lot more changes in the coming years? Yeah, so good question. I mean, there's, of course, the digital transformation. We were, we've been trying to encourage people to embrace and adopt digital ways of working in general practice for decades. And then all of a sudden people were doing it overnight, which was quite incredible. I think shows the strength of general practice in the way that it can adapt like that. And that's mostly been really good. Previously, I've been quite frustrated by some of the inefficiencies in general practice. So I'd sit there and, you know, a child's been dragged out of the middle of a school day or a parent with an important job has had to fit an appointment around everything else. And I sit there and I think I'm listening to them and thinking we could have just done this on the phone or even a a text message sometimes. So we've become incredibly efficient in that respect, even with the way that we communicate with secondary care. And I think some of that's amazing and it should continue. But some things have been really hard. So when a patient enters the consulting room and sits down with a GP and you shut the door, what happens in that room is is really quite sacrosanct. It's very special. You know, even if it's just sitting in silence with someone or it might be the twinkle in the eye of an elderly gentleman It might be the hand on an arm of someone that's really struggling to cope. There's often that people turn around and open the door and whilst I'm here, doctor, there's something else I want to mention. And all of that, it felt to me like it disappeared overnight. And if I'm being honest, I found it really hard. I described it to someone the other day as, you know, I I feel like I'm working in a black and white animation and what we previously had was watercolour. So what we have now, it kind of just lacks that 
texture. It's a bit sterile. It's a bit detached because you're on the phone. And I think in a way, I haven't quite come to terms with the fact that we probably won't ever get back to the way that we were working before. And it was one of the aspects that drew me to general practice. But I think on a positive note, we've also seen incredible strength of general practice, like I said, in the ways that we have been able to flex to what's happened, the agility, the autonomy that we've shown, the way that we've continued to absorb risk and keep people safe at home and away from secondary care at a time when they, you know, we really needed to do that. So there are some positives. Thanks, Nish. And I loved some of the description that you just gave in that answer, which just brought to life, just made it really vivid, particularly the description of what happens in the consulting room being this sacrosanct, sacred, magical thing. Is that something that drew you to general practice? Was it something about that kind of one-on-one relationship that, that drew you into it? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was it was the heart of the reason why I chose to be a GP. I um I remember when I was at medical school, I was really lucky I came across Iona Heath who was president of the college at the time, and she said something that just summed it up for me and I think still really rings true today. She said, "In the hospital, diseases stay and patients come and go, and in general practice, patients stay and diseases come and go." And I just think that's that's really powerful. It just encapsulates the way that we look after our patients over time, the way that we are so heavily involved in all the other aspects that impact on a patient's health beyond just what we do in the consulting room, the way we understand how a patient's illness shapes and influences their identity. Being a part of stories in that way is such a privilege. So aside from general practice, Am I right in saying that in recent years, I mean, I guess it's also built into your role in general practice as well. It's not entirely separate. But in recent years, you've been developing a growing interest in leadership and policy. What's behind your interest in those areas? I probably have to go back to when it started, which was quite a while ago. But if I look back, there are probably two pivotal moments in my career that I think if it wasn't for those two things, I don't think I'd have the interest that I have in leadership and policy today. And the first is when I was at medical school in our fourth year, you've got to choose a subject to specialise in, to do a BSc in. So I decided just to do the one non-science subject that was on offer, and that was healthcare management at the business school. My dad's an accountant, my brother's an accountant, and I thought, well, finally, I might be able to understand what on earth they're talking about at home. And it was completely transformative for me in a way that I genuinely didn't expect. It was one of the best years I had at medical school. And it was because, I mean, firstly, I got to understand what the NHS looks like. And I'm slightly embarrassed to say that I didn't underst- I didn't know what the structure of the NHS looked like. Um, I was very much in this medical bubble and hadn't hadn't had the time or the training to really think about what was beyond the the consulting room and I also realised that so much of that was going to influence the care that I was going to get to deliver as a clinician and I think the other thing I realised was that as a doctor you could potentially influence that and maybe even because of the insights that you have into your patients and because of the trusted position you hold in society and in the eyes of your patients maybe you have a responsibility to influence that. So that was a key moment for me. And I I remember Don Berwick saying, I can't remember if he was quoting someone else, but he said, there's always two jobs. You have your job and then you have the job of improving your job. And something about that sowed a seed in me because I then went on to my foundation training and I was focusing on my core job, which was to become a, a doctor and a good doctor. But there was something about 
that other job of what could I be doing to improve things for my colleagues, my patients and for the system. The next pivotal moment was when I did the clinical fellowship that you mentioned working for the National Medical Director, which was Sir Bruce Keogh at the time. And again, that was utterly transformative. For people that don't know, it's a scheme for junior doctors who are from all different specialties, all different stages of training, and they get put in an NHS organisation like an arm's length body or a charity or a college. And it's, it's sort of like a leadership apprenticeship real hands-on leadership experience and that was that was incredible so I think it was those two things that if it wasn't for them I, I definitely wouldn't have this interest. And you said that while you were studying you felt you didn't you didn't understand what the NHS looked like or you didn't have that overview is that something that you think is typical of the medical school experience and the training um, that doctors get? I think it has changed a little bit. I'd like to think it has a bit because I've spoken to people who say they do cover a bit of that in the curriculum. It's not a criticism because I think we have an awful lot to learn in a really short time. But I'm always struck by the way that if you look at other sectors, most people go into the world of work knowing what the world of work looks like beyond just their job. And I definitely didn't. I don't think any of my peers really did when I entered the world of medicine. I couldn't have told you what a CCG is or what it does or any of those things or even how money flows, none of it. And I guess it's not core to the job. But in the same way that we now really understand that communication skills are an important part of medicine and we get loads of training on that and we realise that in order to be a good clinician, you need good communication skills alongside it. I, I really think that in order to be a good clinician, you also need to understand the structures that underpin everything that you're working within and think about how you can influence those. And so I guess that takes me on to the programme which you set up, the Next Gen GP programme. So um, can you tell us a bit about what the what the programme is? Yeah, sure. So I, I was doing this leadership fellowship working for Sabrice Keogh at NH England, and I just got this sense really that it was going to change things for me permanently. I was you know, I was getting to understand a bit more, like I said, about the structure of the NHS and also a bit about myself as a leader, which I'd never had the time or the tools to think about before. I began to see that the conception that I had about leadership was totally wrong because I used to always think it was about titles and authority, you know, having lots of letters after your name, improving yourself. And then once you've done all of that, maybe you can start to actually change things. But I realised that that's, that's, nonsense and leadership is a verb it's about changing things around you you know sometimes I think we overcomplicate it I could probably say if there was one word that sometimes I think is slightly better than leadership it would be influence and I mean that as a verb to influence which is is just getting people behind a purpose it's what we do every day as GPs in our consulting rooms. And the thing about that is you don't have to wait till you've got lots of letters after your name and you're far along in your career. We can all influence in whatever sphere that we're in. A bit of a frustration brood. I started to think, you know, why aren't we investing in more leaders in the system, especially in primary care? Instead of just leaving it there, which I maybe previously would have done, I suddenly began to think, you know, Nish, that's not the right way to think about it. What you should be asking yourself is, what can you do about it? And after that, just by chance, I think it was about six or eight weeks into my fellowship, and I went to the RCGP annual conference, and I was chatting to somebody in a pub there, this makes it sound like I have terrible chat in a pub but I was chatting to him about this frustration and he said 
you know, you should speak to someone in the Midlands called Nick Harding, who's a GP that's running a program for aspiring CCG leaders because he's doing what you sound like you want to do. And then that weekend, I went up to Newcastle to do the Great North Run. And I was driving back with my husband and it's a six hour drive from Newcastle to Cambridge. And normally that length of drive, you know, we would share it. But my legs were total jelly after this run. And I think about an hour in, he said, Nish, you know, I'm, fine. I'm happy to drive, but you need to talk to me or give me something interesting to think about. I found myself talking to him about this idea that I'd had about leadership training for GPs. And then in the same breath, I was telling him all the reasons why I couldn't do it. And he said to me, you know, park the reasons to one side why you think it can't be done and tell me what the end product would look like. And I found myself telling him exactly what Next Generation GP is, it even had a name at that time in my head but with a weird clarity and conviction I don't know where it came from but I told him about this end vision I had of training young GPs early on in their careers in a very accessible way you know in a way that would be so easy for them to dip their toe in the water of leadership and doing this across the country and and then he said okay so what's stopping you and over the next I don't know three four hours we went through each of the things that I was really worried about and he very cleverly sort of dismantled each of those and, and I remember we got home and he got out of the car looking utterly wrecked and he turned around and he said to me you know you just have to do this bloody thing now like, you just have to do it you've spent the last four hours talking to me about it you have to do it and I think what I learned from that and the reason I tell that story is talking to other people when you've got an idea is is really valuable other people's belief in you can be such a powerful motivator and I guess in a way it can also hold you to account a bit in a light way and the King's Fund is a very important place in this story because I think a day or two later I was at a conference at the King's Fund sitting on the doorstep when I had this call with Nick Harding who I hadn't heard of before and he hadn't heard of me but there he was going I really believe you can do this Nish I believe you can create this program it's a brilliant story and I also particularly love Nish that um, you said that the King's Fund you know, played an important <laughs> role. Um, and I really liked your definition. It's often very hard to get people to define leadership. But I, it also made me think, as you said it, the NHS and, and lots of other kind of large institutions like it can be quite hierarchical. Is it easy to influence without kind of titles and letters to your name? And obviously you now do have titles. I think you also, you were honoured in the Queen's Honours list, right? Yes, that's what yes. we'll talk about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> does, does the hierarchy get in the way? It can do in, in some places if you let it. It's about how you look at it. If you, if you look at senior leaders and you think, you know, I want to be like them, I want to have that job and that position and that power that's very seductive, I think that's the wrong way to look at leadership. It's a bit like being in the gym and, you know, if you look at people that are lifting weights and you think, oh, that person's a weightlifter and I want to be like them, and you go over... And you can tell I'm talking from personal experience. You go over and you try and lift a really heavy weight like what they're lifting. And you look a bit stupid and you fall over and it hurts. And you think, I'm never going to do that again. But that's totally the wrong way to approach it. Like What you need to do is think, what is the smallest weight that I can lift in front of me today? And you do that, you know, maybe week in, week out consistently. And you stretch yourself a little further each time and slowly you'll lift heavier and heavier weights. And maybe one day someone will turn around and look at you and say that there's a weightlifter. But 
that's not the point. Going after the title is not the point. It's about the verb of doing things in front of you. And leadership is the same. It's just about looking at what's within your sphere of influence. What one thing can you change within your sphere of influence? And usually, if you if you work in a culture that's permissive and you work with good people, there will always be something that you can change. That's a brilliant answer. I wanted to ask you, obviously, the programme, the Next Gen GP programme, I think it attracts national funding now and I think has presence across the country. So what was the biggest challenge you faced when you were setting it up? On a personal note, I'd say the biggest challenge for me was confidence, if I'm being really honest. It probably wasn't anything structural. The structures and the, you know, that all was not, not that difficult because people understood that this was important and people moved barriers out of my way to make it happen in a way that I couldn't quite believe but on a personal level I really struggled um, with the you know we talk about it a lot but the imposter syndrome there was a lot of chat going on in my head of who am I to do this I'm just a trainee I look quite young and um, I, I, I don't really have any formal leadership qualifications and I was standing up in front of rooms of people who were much, you know, often much older than me, more senior than me, with more leadership experience than me, and trying to trying to make this a reality. So I think that's where I really struggled. I will mention a few things that helped, if it's useful, because, I mean, even when you asked me to do this, to do this podcast, I was paralysed under the weight of the imposter syndrome. But I think I've come some way. And the things that have helped me are... I guess in a similar vein to what I said before, so talking to other people can be incredibly useful because other people's belief in you, you know, cannot be underestimated. And also the way you talk to yourself, I think, is quite important. So we can have really toxic conversations in our head, you know, really focusing on what you're not. And I did a lot of that. You know, I'm not older. I'm not qualified. I'm not experienced. I not got any insight into how funding streams work or how to get this off the ground and you can really talk yourself out of things before you've even started and what I'd now try to do is think about not what I'm not but what can I bring to this room this project this you know this idea that no one else can bring so it might be okay so I'm young uh, I'm a bit inexperienced, but instead of thinking about it like that, I'm also quite creative. I'm probably not as weighed down by NHS bureaucracy as some people are further ahead of me. So there are lots of things that I can bring, you know, because of because of things that I am. And the final thing I'd say is asking myself sort of key questions in the moment. So Sir David Haslam, who used to be chair of NICE, told me once, and he says this at Next Gen, he says, ask yourself, you know, would you regret this on your deathbed? And that is quite a morbid question, but it's also intensely clarifying. And the other question I asked myself is, which a GP called Martin McShane said to me, which has stayed with me ever since, which is, how can you occupy the space that you're given? So instead of expending energy thinking about, you know, why was I chosen for this? Or what is someone going to think about me if I go for this role? It's all wasted energy. Why don't you channel that energy into thinking, I've been given this amazing, amazing opportunity. What can I do with the space that I've been given? And, you know, Maya Angelou says this thing, which I have on my mirror on a post-it. She says something along the lines of, how can I be on my own side? How can I be an advocate for me and other people like me? So I, I say that to myself, you know, with this opportunity, how can I use it to help other people like me? So... The biggest challenge definitely has been confidence and maybe we don't talk about it enough and I'm very happy to admit that I have had days where I've wanted to hide under my duvet and thought why am I doing this? Um, 
I would add also that it's not just me. So it sounds, you know, we've got 2,000 people on this program and 47 cohorts. I would, I could never do this alone. So I've got an amazing team that do this around the country in their own time. And I really want to pay tribute to them because it's very easy for me to sit here and say, look, look at where we've come. But it's not me. It's, it's about all these people that are doing this because they believe in it and they're paying it forwards. Thanks, Nish. And um, as somebody who has a lot of negative self-talk in my head, I actually really appreciated those tips. I've written them down and I'm, <laughs> and I'm going to be playing them out to myself. So um, thank you. So we sometimes hear a sense from health professionals, including from GPs sometimes, that they feel they lack power in the system, that at times they feel more done to or a sort of um, sense of disempowerment rather than feeling as if they're equal partners. Is that something that chimes with you and what, what's behind that kind of sense? I think it is true. I think there's a lot of, there is a lot of negativity in general practice and some of it is born out of fact. So, you know, Simon Stevens often says we spend more on hospital outpatients than we do on the entirety of general practice. You know, it's no surprise that, you know, GPs can feel and general practice can feel a bit like being the poor sister of Cinderella sometimes that's how it feels but I also think that it's very easy to sit there and to sit there in the negativity of it and not feel you can do anything about it and I think I'm trying to say to myself that if that is the case you know what can I do to change that so I'm not dismissing it because I think there is some truth in it but I think a more interesting way of approaching it is to think what could I actually do about it. Yeah, so flipping it on its head. And tell us a bit about why, in your view, it's so important that GPs are able to and are supported to step into those wider leadership roles. And I guess, you know, acknowledging that they also also already play very important clinical leadership roles in their own teams. You know, what's the potential when GPs are able to step out into those wider leadership roles? It's probably best to think about the kind of system that we want going forwards. It's often quoted, you know, 90% of patient contact happens in general practice. We know going forward that the biggest usage of healthcare is going to come from an ageing population, chronic disease, multi-morbidity, and most of that is dealt with by generalists in the community. And we also know and hear time and time again that across the world, evidence shows that investment in general practice is associated with better health outcomes and better health system efficiency and improved health equity. So all of that is, I think, quite a persuasive argument that whatever system we design going forwards is going to need a strong foundation in general practice. So the logical conclusion from that to me is that we need GPs in these wider leadership roles. I don't know who said this, but every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. So without that, that's not what we'll get. And the other thing about general practice, I think we occupy a pretty unique place in the system. So the way that we sit inside patient stories over time, we see all the factors that influence their health. All of those things are quite unique. And I think those insights are really important to shaping and delivering services going forwards. So we've talked a bit about your you know, your leadership journey. But I also wanted to talk about your personal approach and your own leadership style. And I noted that you once wrote a letter to your younger self as part of a series of articles on health and care in The Guardian, where you described how each GP has personal traits that patients value. And for you, they were your capacity to listen, 
your knack for connecting with strangers and your sense of humour. Do you see those as being the same characteristics that help you as a leader or would they be different? Gosh, you've really done your research, haven't you? That was quite a long time ago. I'd forgotten I'd written that. A great as a great observation yes probably true so all those things are really important listening to people having a sense of humor being able to connect with people absolutely in fact so many of the skills that I've developed as a GP I use in in leadership roles and being kind really and people talk about kindness as the soft stuff but it's not at all in my opinion I think kind being kind when things are really really hard is difficult. I was thinking about my surgery on Monday and how busy it was and how tired I was and how I got to the end of the day. And I came home and I reflected that I probably, if I'm being honest, wasn't my kindest self to the last patient of the day as I was with my first. And I was reflecting that I need to do that better because when you feel like you're just holding this weight of uncertainty and risk and when your thoughts are slowing down and you're in a a bit of a brain fog staying kind is probably the most important thing you can do and yet not always the easiest so I'd add that to my list of of leadership kind of values and I'm lucky I, I have an amazing role model in my life of someone who is just the epitome of kindness and that's my mum she is just I've finding myself welling up a bit sorry she's just in it doesn't matter how hard things get or how you know who else is pulling on her time she's just this core of kindness in our family and I think if I can be even one percent of that to my patients as a you know to my to the people that I lead to my own family then that would be a good starting point well um, I'm hoping that your mum listens to this Nish and she probably she does. my mum is probably my only <laughs> fan my biggest fan and my only that's fan, not true the so king's fan is too Nish um, <laughs> Um, so yes hello Nisha's mum if you're listening <laughs> and you seem very kind of values driven but what are the things that really drive you as a leader? A value that I really try to live by is contribution and this this might sound a bit cheesy but I think about all of the things that I've been given as a kind of torch to carry on and I mean things I've been given because lots, lots of what I have done and achieved I've not earned I've been given them so you know just the fact that I grew up in this country in a democracy you know my parents were immigrants to this country and had very little but they made sure me and my brother had a good education we had enough money that we could go on holiday and all the other things that come with it we had the opportunity to go to university I've had all these incredible leadership opportunities given to me I think about all of that as a torch that represents all the people that have come before me and I think in the course of my lifetime, how can I take that torch as far as I can possibly take it before I have to hand it on? That may not be very far at all, but I have to take it some distance. And what can I do with what I've been given to take it as far as I possibly can? That's a responsibility I have. So that value of contribution is really important to me. And I think the reason it's come into focus, if I'm being honest, is life is short and I haven't talked about this publicly, but when I got married, the day before I got married, my husband discovered a lump in his neck and he ended up having thyroid cancer. And we had a really, a really difficult and quite unexpected start to our marriage for two years. And he's fine now, thankfully, and we're incredibly you know, blessed to have had the care that he's had. But things are pretty bad uh, in that time. And I think before that, I was sort of going round with this quite naive 
youthful immortality not really think you know life is for living and it's we've got such long lives and that experience as much as as difficult as it was we both are quite glad we went through it because I think it taught us both that life is short so going back to the idea of the torch I guess I think how far can I take it and the time I have to do that may be shorter than I think so keeping that in mind every day is really important I'm so glad that your husband is okay now and thank you for sharing that Nish so I also wanted to ask you, you, you've said before in the past that it can seem as if leaders are born rather than made, when in reality, obviously, as you've, as you've kind of shown in, in some of what you've said today, that's not the case. Do you think it's important for leaders to be open about their own leadership journey and the challenges they've faced, and particularly given you know, what you've just shared? How important is it? Yes, I, I mean, absolutely. And I was just thinking I wasn't really planning to say what I said just then and why did I do it and it's probably because so I've seen so many other leaders admit when things have been really hard and if you ask them you know where has your learning come from they will always talk about the things that are difficult mistakes that they've made personal family issues you know failures they're so important to talk about because from the outside you can genuinely think that these people have just you know, been tapped on the shoulder and have this really smooth trajectory to the top and nothing goes wrong. You know, you can admire them for that, but it also makes it feel completely unrelatable and completely inaccessible. And it's a bit like being in a reality TV show. You sort of look at celebrities and think, oh, you're just amazing, but you're also a different species. But actually, if you go behind the scenes, frankly, these are normal people who have had really difficult journeys often. And Part of the reason they've got to where they have got to is because they've had tough stuff happen to them and they've taken it and used it as as growth and learning opportunities. That's why they've got to where they've got to. I 100% think the more that we can talk about the tough stuff, the more open we can be about it, the more vulnerable we can be about it, the more people are going to trust leaders and the more that they're going to be able to realise that these people are not that different from us. So... Final question for you. I'd like to know, and I'm sure our listeners would like to know, what's next for Dr. Nish Manik? A glass of wine, I think. No, you shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. Um, it's a good question. I get asked this quite a lot, and I don't have a grand plan. If I'm being really truthful, if I could, if I could achieve three things in the next chapter of my life, I, I'd be quite happy, and probably in this order. So I really want to be a good mum. First and foremost, maybe there's no definition of what a good mum looks like, but I know part of it for me is being around and being present. So I've got an, you know, an 18 month old. That means I want to work part time and I want to be around for her. I want to drop her to nursery and pick her up and be there for when she really needs me. So that means everything else is going to be squeezed into a, a shorter time maybe but that is really important to me and I'm I'm happy to sort of admit that freely. And then after that I want to be a good GP. You know, that's this leadership stuff is amazing and I I love it, but the the essence of me is is a you know general practitioner. I haven't even qualified yet and I really need to make sure that I focus on that. I think becoming a good GP is a, a lot about pattern recognition and you just need to be around and see a lot of patients in order to recognize those patterns. So I need to make sure that I'm seeing plenty of patients and I'm getting clinical exposure and I am 
I think being a good GP is a lifelong lesson, but I definitely want to focus on that. And then alongside those two things, if I can keep Next Generation GP alive and I can keep paying forwards the opportunities that I've had, then I'll be very happy. So so that's it. There's no grand plan. You know, be, be a mum, be a GP, be a leader. Still a pretty clear plan, though. I'm pretty. I'm still impressed. It's a three pronged approach, Nish. I, I don't have one of those, so I'm. I'm very impressed. Um, so thank you so much, Dr. Nish Manik, for joining me today. Actually, for me personally, just listening to you feels like it's been transformative. I've really appreciated your honesty, and you've inspired me personally, and I imagine many others listening. So thank you so much for sharing your experiences and and your time with us today. Thank you so much, Helen. Honestly, it's a real privilege to have spoken to you and really humbled that you asked me. Well, that's it from us. You can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. We'd love you to subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts as it helps others to find us and also helps us to improve the show. So an extra special plea from me today. Please, please, if you have time, do take a moment to rate the episode and leave a review as it would mean a lot to me and the team here. You can also get in touch with us via Twitter, either at the King's Fund account or my account at Helena Macarena. And finally, thank you as always to you for listening, but also to our podcast team for this episode, producer Sarah Murphy, researcher Jonathan Holmes, and also a huge thanks to our colleagues Becky Baird, Amina Barmal and Trisha Boyle for their advice and assistance. We very much hope you can join us next time.